from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He regretted that he had not, he, he was a taxidermist as well as a painter, that he had not taxidermically preserved the founders. And the thing about this is, he was serious. Uh, he was close friends with Ben Franklin, and he had taxidermically preserved Ben Franklin's rabbit. And uh, after Franklin died... <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been trying not oh, to no, laugh, I, but the I'm idea of taxiderming yeah. Franklin himself. He, he absolutely wanted to do that. I'm Sarah Fenske. This President's Day, as you honor George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, you probably don't turn to locks of their hair. That's not how we remember our departed leaders in 2022. But that is how they did it back in the 19th century. And my guest today has a lot more to say about that and how we remember our founding fathers in general. Keith Butler is a professor of history at Missouri Baptist University, and his recent book is George Washington's Hair, How Early Americans Remembered the Founders. Keith Butler, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Keith, you start your book by telling us about some relics you got to see on a trip to Philadelphia. And this includes a presidential (laughs) hair book. What was this thing? It was amazing. Uh, This guy, Peter Errol Brown, who was a prominent uh, Philadelphia lawyer in the late, well, mid-19th century, uh, started collecting the locks of hair of every U.S. president. And this sounds implausible, except that people in the 19th century would exchange locks of hair a little bit as we use maybe selfies today or something like that. And he was well-connected. So he wrote to the families of the first uh, presidents, and I can trace the correspondence coming and going. It's the real deal. They wow. sent uh, locks of their uh, family members' hair. And I was amazed because the archivist there showed me in his collection, he had put together Brownhead in the 19th century, what he called his presidential hair book. And it included a lock of hair of every U.S. president from Washington through Buchanan, uh, along with a lithograph uh, image of each president. And it was just astonishing to go through that. And I think it was at that point that I realized that I was on to a surprisingly wide-scale phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, this book makes a great case that these the, Washington's hair is all around us. It is. Uh, and that this was a, a common practice. Was this mostly an American thing to exchange these locks of hair? Not, not per se. It was a transatlantic phenomenon. So, for example, uh, there was an English uh, girl who had written a few years uh, earlier when Ben Franklin was alive in the in the 18th century, and asked him for a lock of his hair, and and told him that she would she would weep daily over uh, such a such a token of kindness. Uh, so it was a transatlantic phenomenon. But in the United States, things took a turn, as, as my book details. Um, in the particularly the 1820s and 30s, people began to ascribe new scientific even into their thinking meanings uh, to this practice they thought it tied into new scientific theories of memory itself yeah that was very interesting to read about because even though we might have all heard of one random occurrence of somebody saving a lock of hair the idea that they had this whole theory underpinning this and that this traces back to how they thought the mind works Can, can you walk us through how this tied together for them sure sure so Americans in the, say, the 1820s and 30s were familiar with an, a story from uh, ancient Greece about the uh, fellow Simonides had been at a banquet and uh, he was dining with the, his fellow guests when the roof caved in and everyone was killed. And uh, afterwards, as they tried to sort out uh, the, the victims, uh, he 
was able to recall where each person was by, in his mind, remembering where he was sitting and who is next to that person and the next and the next. People uh, took this for, for hundreds of years in the Western world as uh, evidence that memory should be localized, is what they would say, that, that they thought of the idea of a memory palace. Or even today, you know, when people teach mnemonics, sometimes they'll say, mm-hmm. imagine a room in which you have these objects that stands for things. Yeah. That's all in that tradition. But in the 19th century, as you picked up on in the book, uh, people are going to scientize this. There's a phrenologist, phrenology being the study of bumps on the human skull. And people had thought in the 1830s and 40s and and somewhat after that they could read character by looking at the bumps on on the human uh, skull because they thought this reflected protuberances within the human brain itself. So again, this whole biologized thing. There was a phrenologist, Amos Dean, who really summed up the connection to Simonides when he said, we've all heard about Simonides' abstract idea that you should think in terms of of these things. But he said, we now know through science, through phrenology, uh, that it's literally the case that things have to be physically localized and that physical objects anchor memory, that memory leans on the material world. And that was part and parcel to a sort of frenzy in American culture in that period to grab something uh, from the American past that they could hold on to, including locks of George Washington's hair. And did this extend to any other parts of these founders' physical form? I mean, please tell me they weren't collecting, like, old (laughs) fingernails. No, fortunately, they weren't. But uh, there were people who thought of things like that. So... Uh, Charles Wilson Peale, who was a very prominent painter and really started the first history museum in the United States in the 1790s in Philadelphia. In fact, if you go today to Independence Hall, it's uh, on the second floor of Independence Hall, what they call the Long Gallery. Peale set up this elaborate museum there uh, to the founders, and he regretted that he had not, he, he was a taxidermist as well as a painter, that he had not taxidermically preserved the founders. And the thing about this is he was serious. Uh, he was close friends with Ben Franklin, and he had taxidermically preserved Ben Franklin's rabbit. And uh, after Franklin died... <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been trying not oh, to no, laugh, I, but the I'm idea of taxiderming yeah. Franklin himself. He, he absolutely wanted to do that. And he said that he thought Franklin, being a man of science, might have gone for it. And he imagined that with Franklin's cachet, he might have convinced other founders. Fortunately, I I would editorialize it didn't come to that. Yeah, I I feel that we're very fortunate in this. But, (laughs) you know, even as I'm kind of laughing about this a little bit, I think about my own Catholic Church. Um, And you you bring this up in the book in a very interesting way. You had an interesting quote from a professor of religious history and culture. This is a man named Gary Laterman who wrote, quote, the Protestant roots of American culture discouraged any activity resembling the Catholic tradition of venerating the relics of saints in the treatment of Washington's body. And as you point out, this kind of seems to fly in the face of this. And when we see how these locks were carefully preserved and collected, and there's so many different places, do you think other historians have missed this hair-collecting phenomenon, or do they have reasons for ignoring it because it doesn't fit their thesis? (laughs) Well, I can't see that people have dealt with it, and that was one of my attractions uh, to it. I think uh, many historians have have doubtless experienced what I have, that when you go into these archives, you you find these things. But I haven't seen uh, much of a unified uh, treatment of the phenomenon. And, you know, the, the thing that uh, Letterman said, Laterman, is, uh, is good, but it's, it is off the mark in the sense that when you, when you actually look, as we do uh, closely in the book, the Americans did venerate, uh, obviously, Washington's body. And 
And his family began giving out locks of his hair. Even before he died, he started giving out locks of his hair. And to some degree, it was political patronage to people they supported politically. But uh, more largely, I think they were, they were trying to uh, link the American body politic together uh, using Washington's celebrity to do so. And you feel like this, this worked? To an extent, I think it did work. And the most surprising thing about this to me is that as you get into the 1820s and 30s, ordinary Americans start literally taking this history by the hair. Washington, by that time, had long been dead. He died in 1799. But ordinary Americans began to um, make connections with the extended Washington family. And you can argue in some cases whether the hair is real, uh, but the paper trail in some cases is better than you would think. And uh, ordinary Americans began to get these kinds of things and wave them about to show their connection to the American Revolution. My favorite is this, this guy, he's literally the centerpiece in the book, Hamid Ahmed, who was a black uh, Revolutionary War veteran who uh, managed to acquire what he said was a lock of Washington's hair and sort of made his way in the world uh, in, his, in his community there in Middletown, Connecticut, by uh, demonstrating that he had this connection to Washington. And this, this is, was a way of saying, hey, I'm, I'm here, I belong, I'm part of this Absolutely. tradition. Absolutely, that's right, yes. Ahmed had fought in the revolution. He ended up getting a pension uh, from the United States government. And there's no question, if you look at the details of the timing and everything else, that he was arguing that I'm a founding father too, that I fought for this country, uh, body and spirit, every bit as much as George Washington. Mm -hmm. So we should mention, if people are interested in reading more about this, they can go to georgewashingtonshair.com. That's your website. And there is a discount that you can get if you order through the link on that website. But that's not the only reason I'm sending people to this website. You have a cool feature there. Navigate to the nearest lock of George Washington's <laughs> hair. And I got to say, for locals, this is not going to be hard. There is one here in St. Louis. That's right. Missouri Historical Society uh, has a lock of Washington's hair. It was donated in the probably the early teens of the 20th century by William K. Bixby, who was on Washington University's, Univers uh, Washington University's board of directors. He was an industrialist uh, here in St. Louis and a Washingtonophile. So he bought, you know, original letters of Washington and he also bought a lock of Washington. So this seems like, um, you know, some of them, some of these locks of hair, it seems more clear cut that this yeah, was really Washington absolutely. or not. Ours seems like it has a good provenance it here in St. Louis. It has decent provenance as those things go. Yes. If you want to see the mother load, you can go to uh, Mount Vernon and they have more than 60 locks of Washington's hair, you know, putatively described uh, in their collections. And the provenance on some of those is incredible. But maybe the best uh, provenanced example in the United States or the world, because uh, there are even some in Europe, uh, is in Boston. The Masons in Boston have an urn that Paul Revere himself made uh, after Washington died, uh, into which, uh, by design, they put a lock of Washington's hair. Martha herself signed off on this and uh, donated the hair. And <laughs> it's been held that way ever since. So I got to ask about one other where maybe the provenance isn't quite as good as sure, that one, but sure. it certainly got my attention. When I yeah. was looking at georgewashingtonshair.com, there is a second lock that is here in the state of Missouri, and this is in Layla's Hair Museum yes, in Springfield, yes. Missouri. That's is right. is That's Layla right. collecting far more than George Washington's hair? She is. I visited uh, Layla's Hair Museum a couple of summers ago. Uh, she was she was in her element uh, explaining all of this to me. She's a former hairdresser to the stars, and uh, she collected lots of hair of people whose, whose hair she worked on, celebrities, and then started buying on the market uh, 
locks of hair of famous Americans and, and others. Um, I, with all respect uh, to her, I, I have to say the provenance was uh, questionable in that case. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a polite way to say it, but it's interesting that these hair collections continue to this day. You know, you have um, sightings throughout this book. They showed up at the 1904 World's Fair right. here in St. Louis. One that was pretty surprising to me, in 2007, or actually 2006, you could get them in, if you got the, drew the right <laughs> card from tops, 2007, yeah. you could get them from upper deck. Yes. So this yes. is something, I'm thinking of this, as this is all in the past tense. A hair collection could live to see a new century. Oh, it absolutely continues. Continues. Uh, recently, a, a Google executive uh, spent a lot of money uh, to buy a lock of Washington's hair, and it's still a, a thriving uh, market, uh, believe it or not. Uh, every few months, you know, a major example is sold uh, somewhere. So, Keith, one last thing I wanted to ask you about in our final minute or so here sure. today. You connect this, this quest for Washington's hair, with a much more current example of president's hair. This is yes. how you end your book, talking about Barack Obama. Yes. Can you bring this full circle for Absolutely, us? Absolutely, yes. Um, Barack Obama very uh, kindly, as I think was his, his way and is his way uh, as a person, he had welcomed into the Oval Office uh, a family of a gentleman who had served on his staff and somewhat, you know, tangentially, but nonetheless had served. And it was an African-American family and the, the son uh, of this uh, gentleman, a guy by the name of Philadelphia, um, this little boy was uh, still, you know, in elementary school. And he suddenly asked the president if he could touch his hair. Mm -hmm. And Barack Obama, President Obama, wasn't exactly sure at first what he said, uh, but then he repeated it. The president graciously leaned over and let him touch his hair, and the little boy said that, now I know your hair is just like mine. Hmm. And that's very striking to me because the New York Times later did a profile on this young man, and he said now someday he wants to be president of the United States. And the details are certainly in the book, but if you know the long, bizarre career of George Washington's hair, um, I think that it is not surprising that a, a young child uh, realizing that you don't have to have, you know, uh, any particular hair uh, actually to be president would be inspired in this way. Well, Keith Butler, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Keith is a professor of history at Missouri Baptist University. He's the author of George Washington's Hair, How Early Americans Remembered the Founders. You can get a discount if you order through georgewashingtonshair.com. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dort. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.